pray. Lord, may we hear your word. May you allow me to be a conduit of your word. And may we go from here being those people who do your word to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Remember, Jesus is here preaching the Sermon on the Plain. And what He has been doing as He's preaching to the disciples is describing the life of His true disciples. He is describing the fruit of believers. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are persecuted. Because of my name, you who cling to me, not only that, you rejoice even while you're being rejected, persecuted, because your reward is great in heaven. Be merciful to other people who don't deserve it, as my Father is merciful to you, putting away your sin. Don't be judgmental and condemning. Okay, here's the flow of the text in His sermon so far. And sometimes Jesus is so simple that the profundity of His words is easily missed. Notice the word for at the beginning of verse 43. Okay, so let's, let's get the flow. Summarize it. Here's Jesus saying, saying the, the, the life now that I have been describing of those who are my disciples, that, there it is, okay, what He's been preaching. That's the life of my true disciples. For, argument now, because no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. You don't get grapes from orange trees. He's saying there are good trees and there are bad trees. Now, he doesn't mean there are naturally good trees and naturally Bad trees. And I've come to find out who are those good people. You know, in our society, you ask the question of most human beings, and sadly, most human beings in the church, what do you think? you think people are basically good? Yeah, I think people are. Down at the core, they're basically good. I mean, no one's perfect. We all got our flaws. But... I mean, really, if we just fix what's outside of us, our society. See, it's not people that are basically evil, it's guns. Let's get rid of them. See, the problem is a lack of education. Cultures in which little communities live. If we just change society and education and culture, then goodness would flourish 
all the more. Jesus is saying that is exactly wrong. He's saying sin comes from our very nature. The root of the tree that we all are. We are sinners. Not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The issue in our lives is not the, the actions, the things we do, the works that dangle on the end of the branch. The issue of our lives is the core of our nature, whether it's been changed or not. The issue is the treeness of what a true disciple is or not. Has our nature that we're born with, we're all bad trees by nature, has it been changed into a good tree? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Or the way Jesus says it, the proof of the tree is in the fruit that it bears. His little parable there is saying, the good tree is the tree of saving faith. The bad tree are those who don't have saving faith. There is in our American evangelical church world a widespread teaching that teaches you can be a good tree and bear no good fruit. That you can have Jesus as your Savior from hell. You're going to heaven because you said a prayer. But then never bear the fruit fruit of a changed tree, changed life. Never bear the fruit, in other words, of obedience to Jesus as your Lord. Now, those who teach that, what they're trying to do is protect the doctrine in the New Testament of salvation by grace, through faith, alone, apart from any works. A doctrine which is thoroughly biblical and central. But the unbiblical implication that many draw from that truth, like you can have Jesus as your Savior even though you've never made Him your Lord. You can be saved but never become a disciple. Someone who listens and learns and obeys your Master. That misconception rests... What's the problem here? It rests on a misunderstanding of the nature of the faith that saves a person. And because, therefore, just assumes faith, you said a prayer, it gives a false assurance to many people that they're Christians... And they're not. If a person claims to be saved, but has no hunger for God's Word, 
No affection for the truth of the Gospel, which, which comes out of their mouth and the words that they speak. But, but instead, let's just, just take the context of Jesus' sermon. But instead, out of the mouth of their tree ongoingly, just watch it for a while, is unforgiveness of others. Bitterness. Refusal to love even the enemy, then that person who professes Christ, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, really needs to examine their heart to see if they're in the faith. Or the way Jesus says it right here, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yes, I'll forgive you. Or no, I will not. And that leads Jesus now to clarify the same point all the more. Look at verse 46. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, and not do what I tell you. And then he gives the parable, the two houses with the two foundations. And in the end, the house, or the person, in other words, who stands in the midst of the storm is the one who has the fruit. Or, change with Jesus, His analogy, has the foundation of what? Of obedience to Jesus as His or her Lord. That's the text. Now some people may say, well, wait a minute. How do you, how do you say that oh, oh, obedience is the foundation? Isn't faith, doesn't Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 said for by grace are you saved through faith. And even that's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Doesn't John 3.16 say, For God so loved the world, so that whosoever would believe in Him will have eternal life. Isn't faith the foundation? How is it that you say, Obedience to Jesus' commands is the foundation. Well, the, the, the answer to the question is, again, it's because of the nature of what the faith is that saves. In other words, if faith, which actually is prior to moving and acting, forgiving Somebody, according to sermon, loving your enemy. It is prior. But the point is, if faith is real, obedience follows. Just as if wet comes with water. Or to use Jesus' first analogy, the, the orange tree, the tree itself is faith. Genuine saving faith. The fruit that grows on the end of it is the obedience 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I say. If I am your Lord, there's something real there. Not perfect, but genuine. Oranges or obedience on the end of the tree. It's just, I'm going to say it again differently. You know Jesus' short little parable. There's a man who's walking and he runs across this field and he finds a treasure buried. He doesn't own the field. He covers it up and he goes home and he sells all that he has to buy the field. So, say it this way. Jesus, for him to say something like this, believe that I am the treasure in the field and you will be saved. That's biblical. But for him to say it a little bit differently is essentially no different if he were to say this. If you believe that I am the treasure in the field, then go home and sell all you have and buy the field. The action of the obedience for him to tell you to go home and sell all you have is the evidence that you really believe that he's the treasure. In the field, or in other words, it's the evidence of saving faith. Now, see, just take Ephesians 2 again. We're saved by grace through faith, right? Alone, yes. But go on to the next verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God Himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He prepared the fruit as much as He did the tree that He creates of you. Those who quote John 3.60, to believe, right? Just read on in John chapter 3. And John says very clearly in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Yes. And whoever does not. What word do you think he's going to say? Believe. But what is stunning, he doesn't use that word. He uses the word obey. But on the other hand, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, no, I can't quote. I can just, but I don't have time. But just numbers of verses in the New Testament equate saving faith with obedience or disobedience with unbelief in Christ or in the gospel. Because saving faith is not merely knowing, okay, I hear the gospel, I heard the message, and agreeing that it's true. That's not what saving faith is. It includes that. But at the core of saving faith is becoming a new tree. In other words, it's the result of a heart transplant that now loves Jesus. It loves Christ and who He is as laid out in Scripture and what He has done. It is 
the heart now that delights in Him. Okay. So let's go back now to the text and let's see how Jesus unfolds this in His story of the two foundations underneath the two houses. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Okay. Obedience is not optional. It's the test of saving faith. It's the fruit on the tree of the new life. That's the context. And this little phrase here, Lord, Lord, saying it twice in the culture is getting over the point of, this is an intimate type of familiarity. It's not like, okay, He's Lord! It's, my Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus. It's, it's this intimate familiarity that the person uses. And so therefore, Jesus is clearly warning of the danger of a false profession of faith. Now, when we turn over to Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, where Matthew also has first the analogy of the tree and its fruit, Okay? And then after that, this, the, the, the other parable, the other analogy of the two houses with the two foundations. Okay? Same flow. Except, Matthew inserts some words in between those two that Luke doesn't. And these are the words that Jesus speaks in between them in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, now hear it, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then will I declare to them, I Never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Bathroom, thanks. Jesus is addressing His warning to those who call Him their Lord. And the parable says that their are some who are heading for major destruction because their Christianity is superficial, because it's false. Let's look. In verses 47 and 48, Jesus paints the picture of genuine believers. Let's Start with verse 46 again. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? 
Everyone who comes to Me and hears My words and does them, I will show you what He is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. Now, the whole point there is not the house. It's the foundation that the house is sitting on. And what it's sitting on is the solid rock. In the context, what's the rock? It is coming to Jesus. It is listening to His words very carefully. And it is obeying His words. Doing them. Every human being is building a house. The house of our lives. The question is, are we building our lives on the solid rock of foundation called obedience to Jesus? Or are we building it on the sand of an empty confession of faith? To build a house appropriately and to go down deep before you start constructing anything on top takes time and expense and perseverance. But when the flood comes, you'll be very glad you did it right. The flood. What the heck? Now, let me just... I I think... It is appropriate to even understand the floods, the pains, the pressures, persecution, for the word's sake, etc., of this life, in a sense, is floods in your house will stand. The, the reason I say that is, Jesus' words about the four soils, and the word comes, and you've got all these believers, right? Quote, unquote. Yay for Jesus. And then persecution comes and bye-bye, they're gone. I'm, they're gone in this life. They're not even proclaiming to be a Christian anymore. There's a way in which floods wipe out the profession of people's faith. Okay. But, especially because of Jesus' words in Matthew, on that day, on that day, they'll say, and I'll say, I never knew you. I particularly think what he means by flood is that judgment day where we will all stand before Christ. And he's saying the person who has built their life on obedience to Jesus has the solid foundation that yes, it will even get them through unbelievably powerful tornadoes of this life. But, more importantly, on Judgment Day, they'll stand. 
Those people, with that foundation, on that day, you'll stand the storm of judgment because there it will be confirmed that you have been united with Jesus Christ. It will be confirmed that it is true that He bore your particular sins on the cross and put away your guilt. It will be confirmed as He picks the fruit off the tree, that even He is the one that actually produced in your life. But, there will be others who profess Christ, who live in Christian cultures, who are churchgoers, but who are not walking and living their life in obedience to Jesus, that the text says they will be wiped out in the flood on that day. Just, just listen to the very different words of the way the Apostle Paul later puts it in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, here's the kicker of this text. That before the flood comes, both the houses look the same to the average passerby. But there was a vast difference between them after the flood hit. One stood. And the other was in shambles. And the difference is in what was not visible. It was what was underneath, deep down in the soil of the heart that made the difference. Jesus is, I'm telling you, He's scary and gloriously loving. But the stakes that He's saying here about obedience, about how's your life being built, the stakes, according to Jesus, are really high. Look at verse 49. But the one who hears my words and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Now, Just take the parable. Why would a guy like that in this parable build his house like that? It's easy. It's less expensive. It's a lot quicker. And he's not concerned about what people can't see. He knows they can't see the foundation once the house is up. 
and to dig down deep. That's hard, continuous work. Spiritually, disobedience feels much easier. Get the house up! Come on, just get the lumber and start nailing up the walls and then we'll start tying them together and put the joist in and then build the roof. Let's, let's get it done because I'll be quicker to where I want to be. Inside the house, on the couch, sipping on my lemonade. As I look out the window and my neighbor's over there, he, he's, not even have his, he's not even started on his walls. Can't even see him, but once in a while when he comes up for a drink of water out of the ditch to find bedrock. That's the difference. Christian young people, they, they see their peers in their houses enjoying their lemonade. Oh, they see their peers in promiscuous sexual activity with their boyfriends or their girlfriends with seemingly no consequences. Days go by and weeks go by and months go by and years go by while they're digging a foundation of purity. And it's hard and, and they wonder, is it worth it? Look at them. Look at the others over there. They're in Join their disobedience. The text says, paraphrased, wait. Just wait. Because the storm and the flood is coming. And though those walking in obedience to Christ and pursuing purity. Just as one example. And at times when you go through doubts, is it worth it? When the flood comes, you'll know the reason you were digging deep. There are so many people, so, sadly so many professing church-going people who do not bother to put in a solid foundation in their life. My house, it's fine. I've been living in it for 18 years. I'm okay. I mean, I know my house. I, I am. I mean, it's who I am. I am a drunkard. But look, no, hasn't fallen. I know I'm divorced. And... and I've been sleeping with my boyfriend, but, you know, God understands. He's grace, grace, right? People only say that when it's not raining hard outside. They only say that when there's no immediate threat of a flood. The riverbed by their house is dry. And when people cry flood, 
They flood. What flood? Jesus says, it's coming. You remember Jesus' words elsewhere? The end of a parable? Fool. This day your soul will be required of you. Or the way He ends our text. And the ruin of that house was great. Now, here's the great news of Jesus' words. He plants new trees. And you can trust that if He's planted you, it'll grow the good fruit. Now, what is the other good news about this text? Is that Jesus gives us very practical advice in obedience and pursuing Him. And it's right there in verse 47. So He says, Believer, this is how you continually build the foundation of your life and your house. Three things. Come to Him. Listen to His words. And act on those words. First, See 47? Everyone who comes to me. Okay. You have to personally come to Jesus. That is the beginning of the foundation. Because the whole structure and the foundation of the house is an illustration of His words here. You have to come yourself personally to the Savior, to Jesus. Christianity is not a system of rules where we kind of like, you know, better up our life. I stopped doing these bad things and start doing good things. And you get this big list of rules you keep. That is not what Jesus is talking about. That is not the kind of obedience that He's talking about. Christianity begins at the cross. Before you ever came into existence. At the cross is where Jesus bore the just wrath of God against every person who would be a new tree planted. It is at the cross where He put away your guilt for your sin. And it is at the cross where He purchased your new birth. Your new tree-ness. And so, in experience in life, as you're walking along in this life, He sovereignly brings to you through a book or a person, the message of Jesus. And with that, because Jesus purchased it, He blows His wind. And you come alive to Him. You're forever secure in Him. Faith is now alive in you.
He took you and attaches you to the vine of Jesus. And the fruit will grow. You must come to Him. Secondly then, is you must, as you're digging the foundation of your life, hear His words. You see? Everyone who comes to Me and hears My words. See, it is this coming to Jesus that enables hearing. So you got to get the, just get get the scene. He's on a mountain on this big plateau, and there's a lot of people, maybe over a few thousand. Remember his close twelve apostles, and then all the other believers, disciples of his, and then beyond that, non-disciples. People say, "Who is this preacher?" And this is where he's delivering the sermon. And clearly, there are numbers of people there who do not hear Jesus' words that day. And it's not because they're way in the back and His words are inaudible to them. It's because His words are not penetrating their affections, their hearts. They're not getting it or Him in that way. True hearing requires developing those kind of heart hearing skills. Like attentively thinking about Jesus' words, sentences, paragraphs, argument, thought structure of what he delivers throughout this whole book called the Bible. Our modern culture has so attacked our ability to do that. To listen to Him well. To be attentive. To think clearly about Jesus' Word. The visual media that has now bombarded us for the last 60 years is only getting worse and worse and worse with the internet and everything, with, it, with its video bites and quick flash, see, see, see. That's six seconds. That's too long. I'm bored. And so they, they know that. So they, so they give you another one and another one. Ten seconds, news flash, boom. You've got to stop. That's all you get because you can't keep their attention. You go to another topic. And go to another topic. That's the culture we live in. Things are boiled down to nice, quick slogans and sayings. Our attention spans, because of condition of our culture, have radically shrunk. And you put all of that in the context of what we talked about a few weeks ago, of the postmodern relativism that is everywhere. It has so damaged our ability to follow the reasoned arguments of Scripture. 
I don't get it. I did not say the reasoned arguments of a preacher talking about Scripture. No. The reasoned arguments of the Scripture itself to endeavor to be a preaching pastor set on the exposition of a text. The meaning following and helping the people see how you're following the flow and structure and arguments of the text before us on Sunday morning is a real challenge in this day and age that we live. Now, now we, we just take that problem that we have to wrestle with in our culture, and you put that together with the infiltration of so many people into the church world, particularly through the last four decades of the seeker-sensitive movement, and you add all these people who deep down, if they're the clearest thinkers in the world, really some don't want to hear Jesus' words. It's how Paul warned about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3-4. to For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But instead, having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. Okay. There's a danger. For all of us, don't think it's not a danger for us personally. Therefore, part of developing the skills of hearing and listening to Jesus is being desperate to pray. God, don't let my heart be hardened to Your words so that I don't hear what I'm to hear. As the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes! Didn't mean the physical ones here. Didn't mean that the psalmist could not read the Hebrew poetry. But open my eyes so that I may see, behold, wonderful things that are actually there in your law, in your word. It's a heart issue. In other words, therefore, we, every one of us who professes Christ as Savior, is until the day we die desperate to be actively digging the foundation of thinking and reflecting and prayerfully feeling the essence and the content of Jesus' words. Finally, Doing the Word is the third piece. Everyone who comes to Me and hears My Word and does them. Okay. Let's put this together with the last number of weeks. Because this is one sermon by Jesus, isn't it? It's a sermon on the plain. So I have to think, if we're going to, and I'm going to be an expositional preacher, that most particularly the words 
first and foremost he's talking about have to be the words of the sermon that he's preaching. And so we ask, what does it mean to hear his words and then to do them? To do what? First of all, the beginning of the sermon, verses 20 to 26. To obey Jesus means to obey his otherworldly perspective of life. Remember how he started? Blessed are you who? Poor. Blessed are you who? Because of me, it brings to you maybe persecution and pain and the cursing of others. But, but, but you're a kind of person is nuts. You would rejoice in that day of persecution. Because, here's the other word, your reward in heaven is great. So, so he starts this sermon. Here's his words. With this, these words of, this takes your radical, personal commitment to me. This Jesus of Nazareth. Guy that roots your hope in the world to come. You continue to follow the sermon. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Oh, here's all those that do what I say. This is what obedience means. Oh, gosh. It means to obey the command to do what is naturally impossible. Love your enemies. This is the flow of His words. These are the words He's, he's talking about. He's saying disciples and believers, they hear the call and do. Verses 27-28. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's unnatural. And that's the point. Because professors of Christ, whom He's changed their life, when that fruit grows, to whatever extent it grows, never perfectly, it's there. That fruit points <laughs> to what is supernatural. Because what you're doing there is not natural. To obey Jesus, His commands, His words, in our text, means to be merciful to other people who don't deserve it, just as your Father in Heaven, in and through Jesus Christ, is eternally merciful to you. He's saying, true disciples in this sermon... They put down their bitterness and their judgmentalism of others. And they forgive readily. Those who obey Jesus in this text are those who have been so taken up and captivated by Him the message of His life and His death and His resurrection, 
that they build their lives on the solid rock underneath the foundation of their house called reading and hearing and meditating on His words and doing them. Lord, underneath all of this, may it not be misheard. May Your Word to any of our hearts not be misheard. May we know as so often is clearly made explicit in Scripture that the foundation, the foundation of hearing and doing is that You cause us to hear and to do according to Your goodwill. May we rest our heads at night and wake up in the morning ready to fight against unbelief, ready to be desperate to find You as the treasure in our hearts, ready to be joyful to obey Your Gospel and to live out Your glorious commands from the joy that Your undeserved, absolutely purchased and assured promises for us produce in our lives daily. Lord, I beg that You now, in these next ten minutes, work really deeply in us. Create new trees. Make genuine trees more healthy. By the work of your Spirit and the work of your Word. 